All right, hey, let's uh, get started. Glad you're here. Thanks for coming. Um, I know that this is the last class and it's Friday, and so um, I have some objects up here that I'll throw in your direction if you start to fall asleep. So, um, I did. Uh, I did youth ministry for several years, and so I thought we'll maybe do some active learning today on this topic. And I thought that might make some of you nervous, but then so I thought, well, I'm not going to say that. But then I just said it. So. Um, but I'm Mark, and I'm really glad to be with you. And um, I am currently the preaching minister at South Baton Rouge Church of Christ, and uh, making a transition this summer. I'm going to move to Vancouver, Washington. And so uh, wrapping up one ministry and beginning a new, uh, a new season, and we're very excited about that. And uh, I've been preaching for four and a half years in Baton Rouge, and before that I did uh, youth ministry for 14 years. And so uh, as we think about this discussion and about uh, these questions, um, I think about specific people, students that I've known uh, who have wrestled with this, some of them who did not wrestle with this at all. They just uh, came to conclusions about who they were. And so as I think about them and other people that I know and love, uh, this, is, this is personal. Uh, this is not a topic to me. Uh, this is about the lives of people that I really care about. And I know that you are probably in here because you also care deeply about this discussion. You know people that this impacts. Maybe even this is your story, and uh, you are on a journey, and you are uh, asking questions or have asked questions in the past um, about who you are or the nature of your sexuality uh, and, and your relationship with God in the midst of that and your relationship with the Bible in the midst of that. And so um, just a quick, I'm about to give you about 40 disclaimers uh, at the very beginning of class, but the first one is just this, that I am... A uh, white American male who's married to a woman, and so I have some uh, some some bias biases biases. Um, I have some uh, some ways that I see and understand and experience the world, and there are lots of other journeys that people are on, and I just can have no idea what it's like to be uh, some of you. Uh, and some of the people that we know and care about. And so, if I say anything that just like just smacks you in the face, just please know that my heart is not to uh, to say anything hurtful. And um, and thank you for uh, the grace that you extend, um, and grateful for that. So um, I'm going to make an assumption today that this discussion is important to you, and that you're here because you also. Uh, maybe you don't just love or care about or are someone uh, on, the, on this journey of discovery about yourself or about someone else, but that you also care about what God says about this, right? There are people who don't at all care about someone else's journey. They only care about what they think the Bible says. And then there are people who only care about the journey and don't at all care about what Scripture says. And I think that most of us are in here today because we somehow sense that both of those things are very, very important. And so that's why I think this discussion matters. So we're going to take an in-depth look as much as is possible in the uh, time that we have at some specific biblical passages that discuss same gender sexual activity or identity. 
the meaning of these passages are intensely debated all across the spectrum. And so I'm just going to tell you today that I'm, I'm, I recognize that there are all kinds of discussions out there. And we're, we're probably going to avoid most of the extremes today. Uh, I would say maybe sort of an ultra-cultural, ultra um, maybe agnostic or atheistic reading of Scripture that doesn't at all believe that this is the inspired Word of God. Um, on, on one end, we're, I'm, I'm not necessarily going to be saying, let's take those interpretations of Scripture super seriously. It's not that we don't want to take them seriously. It's just that I think as people who want to be shaped uh, by the cross and by the Word, uh, that we probably just aren't going to land where some of those interpretations land. And then also maybe on the opposite extreme of people who just say, you know what, it's just all cut and dry, I've got nothing else uh, to learn, um, that we, we may <coughs> a, a, avoid that perspective as well. And so most, uh, I've tried to be very intentional in everything that we're going to share today, the insights from the text that we're going to explore are all from what I would consider to be Orthodox Christian, maybe even Evangelical Protestant Orthodox Christian sort of moderate theological views. In other words, we're not just going way off into the weeds. These are things that I would just say, and I know these labels might be problematic. These are positions that are uh, taught or believed or at least thought to be potentially credible among people who care about the authority of Scripture, have a high view of God's Word, believe in the Bible, believe that it's given for us, it should be the authority in our life. Um, and so, but we'll look at a variety of, of ways to look at some of these texts. Um, we won't resolve all the debates. So if you came uh, hoping that I have all the answers, uh, sorry to disappoint you. If you don't know me, you, uh, if you do know me, you, you would know that this would just be the, the very first disappointment and then I'll continue to disappoint you as we get to know each other more and more. Uh, but we won't resolve these debates in the time available. Um, also, I'm going to tell you what I'm not going to try to do. I'm not going to try to necessarily change anybody's mind today. Okay? So if you hold a traditional view of what these passages say, I'm not necessarily going to try to turn you into like a fully affirming person that uh, completely changes your mind about what the Bible says. Uh, that's, that's not what I'm trying to do. That's not my agenda. My agenda is to deepen our understanding of the biblical text. And the main reason is, is because perhaps more so on any other topic today related to Christianity and faith and culture, people out there are eager to learn about what the Bible says about this. People who don't at all care about what the Bible says about most anything else are coming to the Bible asking questions. And so when they study and they put in the work to learn what this faith document uh, and this, this Bible and these words and these ancient letters, what they say about this topic, they are leaning into our story and they are asking questions. And so when we show up to a discussion with a person like that and we just say, you know what, the Bible's clear, end of discussion, it, it communicates something to them. First of all, it might communicate that we haven't ourselves wrestled with or taken seriously or been willing to go back to our own text, which might make us come across, I mean, not only prideful and smug, but also maybe uninformed, <clears throat> that there are lots of ways to, to look at these texts. Um, not maybe all equally valid ways, right? So we'll acknowledge that as well. 
And so um, really, if all we do today is if you say, you know what, the Bible says what it says, it means what it means, I'm not changing my mind today, but if you walk away and you understand, even just if your mind is, I want to be better equipped to understand the arguments of the enemy, then, then I want you to be better informed, and we, we can all be better in, informed, and I think that'll make us better conversation partners with people that we would hope would continue to lean in more in the God story. So, um, and last disclaimer, I'm going to ask a whole bunch of questions, and I'm going to answer almost none of them, which I know drives most of us crazy. Um, I'm only going to try to shed light on what the biblical text is saying and what it might mean for our discussion. Um... Yeah, I think that's it. Okay, so here are a list of passages that typically get thrown into the discussion. Now, these aren't the only passages that discuss human sexuality, for sure. That would be a much longer list uh, when we talk about also things like gender identity and what the image of God is in human beings and what uh, how we live in our bodies. Now, the, the list of texts would be just insanely long, right? These are the texts that most typically get brought up in arguments or conversations about uh, the LGBTQ plus conversation, okay? And so that first one, Genesis 19, that's the, the Sodom and Gomorrah story. The ones in parentheses are st other places in scripture that reference or appear to reference that story. Um, and so you'll see that some are from the Old Testament, some are from the New Testament, uh, these, these top ones are often referred to these days as the clobber passages. If you're not familiar with that term, they're called that because uh, Christians use these passages to clobber people, to uh, let them know what God says about all of this, and um, especially people who are uh, on difficult journeys of discovery. Uh, they often experience the wielding of these passages in ways that are, that are hurtful. And so uh, we'll look at those. And then the bottom three, Genesis, Matthew, and Acts, um, are, are, I think, also relevant to the discussion, although they don't specifically mention um, same-gendered sexual activity or identity. So, uh, yeah, so we're going to start with Genesis 19, the Sodom and Gomorrah story, okay? Uh, somebody just tell me. Uh, why did God destroy Sodom? And I know some of you have already thought ahead and you know where we're going, but I'm just telling, like, when if you grew up in youth group and you're 16 years old and you heard a lesson on why Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, why were they destroyed? Because of sodomy. Because of sodomy, right? Which, okay, where did that term come from? Well, okay, so there's particular behavior associated with this city, okay, and God destroyed the cities because uh, they were wicked, uh, and in particular, that that wickedness is associated with sexuality, and in this particular discussion, uh, same-sex sexuality, right? And so that's the traditional understanding, is that they were destroyed because of the sin of homosexuality. And again, I recognize that that term is, uh, is, can be problematic, and that uh, we, we have multiple terms available for discussing this. Um, so... We're going to look at this text, and we're going to ask the question, does the text actually say that that's the reason, or, or not? Um, and some of you may already think, okay, well, you're going to try to then convince me that that's not what it's saying. Well, maybe not. maybe so, maybe not. We'll, we'll see. We're going to ask some questions. Um, so here is uh, the, the text. 
Um, actually, I'm skipping ahead a little bit. Let's go to, yeah, here we go. Um, before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. So you remember Lot is living there, and God's going to, God tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy the city. Uh, and so these, these angels come to warn Lot and to tell him to leave. Uh, they called to Lot, these men from the city, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But do not do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door, but the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back, Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So, why were Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? Well, if you read the text closely, there's a whole bunch of reasons probably why Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. Right? What did you notice? Let's just pick some of the reasons you saw in the text that would make God say, this is a wicked place that needs to be wiped off the face of the earth. Well, he wasn't protecting his daughters. He okay. was protecting the visitors. Okay. <laughs> yes. And so I'm so thankful. Sarah's uh, sermon last night was so powerful. Uh, and this is one of those t stories that, that comes up. When I was growing up, I never, ever noticed that part of the story. I'm ashamed to say, as a, as a young man, that it, that... I mean, I saw it, and it sort of maybe bothered me, but I, it never came to the forefront of my mind. Yeah. Um, well, another reason, because they said, we want to have sex with them. Simply, they want, they want to, we want to taste them. We want to feel them. We want to have a relationship with them, even for this one night. Okay, yeah. So, the uh, non-covenant, just... Uh, pleasure-seeking, dehumanizing fornication. And in this particular case, uh, multiple people want to do this to these men. Okay? Basically rape. Yep. And not just rape. And I know, again, I know these, these are words, these are, um, these are troubling words even to, to speak. Rape, and, and even in this case, gang rape yeah. is, is what is being attempted in this story. Yeah. And so, all kinds of things. And so, one question that's always good to ask is, is there anywhere else in Scripture that speaks of this story? Are there any other clues anywhere in the Bible that might give us an indication of why God wants to destroy this city? And the good news is that there, there are some passages, and I, I skipped over that first one. I want to come back to that. In Ezekiel chapter 16... Uh, this is the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, your sister, people of Israel and Judah, by the way, your sister, 
uh, Sodom and her daughters <coughs> never did what you and your daughters have done. It's a good opening line there. <laughs> the people that you, in your story, who may be the most despicable in every way, are your siblings, and you're worse than them. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. And so, nothing explicitly referencing homosexual behavior, although I know some of you picked up on a specific word. What word do you identify? Detestable, right? We'll come back to that word here in a little bit, um, because that, that is relevant to the discussion. But it sure seems, when you read the rest of the prophets, that they seem to be highly concerned about justice, about economics, about how the poor and the oppressed and the forgotten are treated, the people that society rolls over and leaves behind. And the prophets are telling the people of God over and over and over and over again that not only are you chasing after foreign gods, but there's no justice in your land or in your courts. There's no justice for the poor. And that's why they go into exile. Those are the two main reasons given that the people go into exile is injustice and idolatry. And so here from... The, the mouth of God. God says, this is your chief sin. You're like Sodom. And Sodom's sin was arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned, and they did not help the poor and needy. And did these detestable things before me. And so we'll, we'll talk more about that. There's another verse in Isaiah uh, chapter 1. Uh, oh, I, don't have that. I don't have Isaiah chapter 1 on there. Um, Israel's compared to Sodom. Again, uh, but the specific sins mentioned uh, that Israel was guilty of uh, were sins of injustice, oppression of marginalized groups, murder, dishonesty, and theft. What verse is that? Um, you know, I'm so sorry. I don't have uh, that here in my notes. It's in Isaiah 1. Uh, does anybody have that pulled up? You can find it. Maybe it's 21. I'm guessing 21. Okay, yeah, and I'm sorry. I don't have that on my notes. I thought I had that in my slides. <clears throat> Um, also in Jeremiah, but just jot down Isaiah 1, and I'm sure it'll, it'll become obvious how they're being compared to Sodom. Jeremiah 23 makes a similar comparison. God's people have become like Sodom because of false prophets, adultery, idolatry, and abuse of power. Um, in Luke chapter 10, verses 10 through 12, I've got the verses there. Jesus seems to echo what the prophets say, that the sin of Sodom was primarily that of being unwelcoming and inhospitable. So we have multiple places in Scripture that compare one place or another to Sodom and then specify the problem that God had with Sodom. And except for maybe that one word detestable, none of them make explicit reference to homosexual behavior or, uh, or maybe even anything sexual at all. It's all about injustice, abuse of power, um, pride, arrogance, idolatry. Um, and so there's a passing reference in Jude, uh, Jude verse 7, uh, where it says that they went after strange flesh, okay? Um, and it could mean, strange flesh could mean because they were angels, 
Okay. Um, likewise, this is Jude 7 in the New Revised Standard Version. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which in the same manner as they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural lust, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. <laughs> so, this is the... This is the main verse in the Bible that makes a reference to Sodom, outside the Genesis account, that makes a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah and explicitly ties it to sexual immorality. Okay, all the other ones seem to be saying it, it was about other things. Okay, so um, that in the same manner as they, they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural lust. So unnatural lust in the original language, sarkos heteros. Uh, what do you hear in that second word, heteros? Hetero, so that's the prefix for heterosexual. And what does heterosexual mean? Between people who are not the same gender. Heterosexual would be man and woman, right? Meaning different. Different flesh. And so the term there, they, they pursued sexual immorality and pursued unnatural lust. Well, wouldn't it make more sense if it was that, that it was homosexual behavior that it would say that they pursued the same kind of flesh that they were? But it doesn't say it. It says that they pursued different flesh than they were, which makes, means that a lot of commentators think that that is in reference to the fact that they were, they were angels. They were angelic beings. They were a different kind of flesh and being, and that was unholy. And so then you kind of have that weird stuff in Genesis 5 and 6 about the sons of God and the daughters of men and and all of that, that it seems like God doesn't like uh, spiritual beings trying to have physical relations with uh, human beings, and, uh, and God doesn't like, so it's possible and probable, and again, Jude's really weird, they needed 66 books, and they had to add one more, so let's let Jude in, um, no, I'm just kidding, we like Jude, but uh, yes, David. I was going to say Isaiah 1, 10-17. Thank you, Isaiah 1, 10-17, thank you for looking that up. Okay. So we've already, and I know we're spending a lot of time on Sodom and Gomorrah, but a lot of times what happens is we hear some arguments about the other passages, and then we say, yeah, but you know what? Like, okay, yeah, 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, I get that there's some vocabulary there that we'll come to in a second, but, but remember, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because, because of what they were doing, and those men wanted to have sex with the angels, and, and so see, that, that's sort of like a trump card. And that's why we're spending a little bit of time with Sodom and Gomorrah up front, and again, let's list the potential reasons. Gang rape, lack of hospitality, strange flesh. The angels are strange flesh. Um, it could be that they're destroyed because this is uh, the pursuit of same-sex sexual desire and intentions. Um, it could be the injustice shown towards the women in the story. Um, it, it could be uh, these, these patriarchal values that Lot uh, would rather throw his own daughters outside to the men of the city uh, then violate the rules of hospitality, which tells you, by the way, how strong the rules of hospitality would have been in that culture and also how little regard uh, women might have been considered in, in that society. So some questions. And again, we won't answer most of these. Were these people destroyed because they violated the sacredness of hospitality or because they tried to gang rape the visitors? Or because the visitors weren't human but angelic and therefore off limits as strange flesh. Or because of the reasons listed in the prophets that they were unjust and oppressive and didn't care for the poor. 
or because the sex that they desired was same-gendered sex, or is it all of these things, or only some of them, and if so, which ones, and how do we decide? Okay? Um, again, I don't have the answers to any of that, so uh, we'll have to ask somebody who knows more about the Bible than I do. Uh, there's a lot of sin going on in Sodom, though. That's clear. And God doesn't like it. It's an unjust place, and, and so God does away with them. Okay, so now let's, let's go to this, uh, these next texts in Leviticus 18 and then also in chapter 20. Where in the law, in the Torah, we have some commands. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. There's that word again. Okay, so this is going to be important. Uh, and then in chapter 20, if a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. So let's talk about this language of detestable. Uh, similar language is used throughout the law for many things that God wants his people to be separate from, including, and I'm from, I'm living in Louisiana right now, so this is personal to us. Uh, including the eating of certain kinds of seafood and shellfish, okay? And so the Hebrew word for abomination or detestable is the Hebrew word to'eva. Many times in the law, when God tells his people not to do something, because he wants them to be set apart and distinct from the nations around them, this is the word that is often used. And many scholars consider this word to be more about boundaries and taboos. Uh, it is a negative word, but it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing that we think of when we use the word. When we use the, the, the word detestable, uh, most of the time I don't just say, well, that's a, a boundary marker that delineates one kind of person from another. To me, there is disgust. <clears throat> it's Detestable is something that is revolting and disgusting. That's what the, that word evokes in me, uh, and maybe for you as well. But does that carry, does the word to'evah in fact carry that baggage that, that, it ha that it does for us? And some scholars say perhaps not. That God says about these sexual relations that they are to'evah, they are an abomination, they are you are to be set apart from this kind of behavior. Um, but does that mean that it's wicked or that it's just something God wants them to stay away from in God's wisdom? Okay, and again, we'll come back to, to crawfish. Went to a crawfish boil a few weeks ago. It was delicious. If eating crawfish is wrong, I don't want to be right. Okay, it's, it's amazing. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus and for no other reason than now we can eat crawfish and bacon. Um, I'm just kidding. There's a lot more reasons than that. Um, but there are a lot of things, in other words, in the Bible and in the Old Testament and in the law specifically, that are called detestable in the eyes of the Lord that now, as Christians, we are okay with. Okay? So the, uh, and so we will we'll, we'll come back to that. Yes? I'm just wondering if the Bible ever says if you eat crawfish, you're going to be put to death and your blood will be on your own. Yes, okay, so that's a great question, um, and um, my short, very short answer to that is I'm not sure, but I don't think so. 
And so, so this one does, some of these do seem to carry uh, greater uh, consequences or, or penalties than, than others. So that's a great observation. And um, we would probably need to go through and, and catalog more so than I've done and I'm prepared to answer today. So that's a, that's a very good question. So that would be something for deeper study for each of us to pursue. The penalty for these actions and these verses, regardless of whether it's icky and gross or just something to be set apart from, the penalty for these actions is death. Uh, but the penalty is also, so I do have some examples, the penalty is also death for those who take God's name in vain or who work on the Sabbath or who are disrespectful to their parents. So if you have a teenager in your house and they come to you on Sunday afternoon, we'll say the Christian Sabbath, and say, gosh, mom, I'm not going to obey you and clean my room because I have to go to work on the Sabbath. Then they should be thankful that we no longer enforce the death penalty for something that the Bible says we should enforce the death penalty on, right? So this has to do with what's our relationship to the Old Testament, right? Uh, and there are all kinds of discussions around that. So here's some questions about the passage. Do these commands apply to all people in all times or only to the people of Israel living in the promised land who were called to live distinct from the nations around them? Because these commands are in the old law, are they irrelevant for modern Christians? If we say they are still to be enforced, then on what basis do we make the claim for this specific issue and not on other rules of the law that use the same kind of language, if not exactly, at least partially. So as with many other Old Testament commands, the church is faced with the task of discerning whether Israel's traditional norms remain in force for the new community of Jesus followers. That's a quote from Richard Hayes. Let me say that again. As with many other Old Testament commands, the church is faced with the task of discerning whether Israel's traditional norms remain in force for the new community of Jesus followers. And of course, then we've got all kinds of questions to answer. Scott McKnight uh, has a book, The Blue Parakeet, in which he helps people ask those questions. On, on what basis are we making these decisions? He says it's actually appropriate that we make some of these decisions and that we follow some of these things and that we don't follow some of the other ones. But we ought to at least know what our logic is in making those decisions. And so he kind of walks you through in, in that book how, how we can be more aware of that. So those are the Old Testament passages. Since we're good Church of Christ folk, most of us, we're going to just say that none of that matters to us. We don't have to follow any of it. So let's go to the New Testament. <laughs> just kidding. But we are going to go to the New Testament. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 and 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. Uh, so we'll read these. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And by the way, it goes on to say, and that is what some of you were, but you've been washed, right? And so uh, there's this idea that some of the Corinthians engage in these kinds of practices, but now in Christ they have changed. So I recognize that that's part of the context. Then to 1 Timothy, we also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers. I know that's a big problem in your church. For murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel, 
concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So, these underlined portions are the words in question. And if you pick up any three or four translations, you probably gonna, are going to see different renderings of these, these words here. Uh, the word homosexuality uh, did not exist in English uh, in, in that form until it was first coined in 1869 in a German pamphlet by a novelist named Karl Maria Kartbeny. And this word did not appear, uh, this word homosexuality did not appear in any Bible translation until the 1973 NIV, English Bible translation. Uh, so why does that matter? Well, it matters because this is a, a, this is a modern word that we're using to describe um, something that we think is happening in, in these, these passages and maybe in the Sodom and Gomorrah story and in other places. So we, we have associated certain behaviors and types of sexual practice and we sort of summed them all up under this umbrella of homosexuality. And although this may be a shock to a few people in the room, the Bible was not written in English. And I say that, I know I'm saying that jokingly, uh, the old joke that if the King James was, the, uh, was good enough for Jesus and the disciples, that's good enough for me. Um, we had a, a congregational conversation about some of these things uh, several years back, and a, a gentleman came to our elders and wanted to meet with them and ask them some questions. He was very distressed by the whole conversation and uncomfortable about it, and he was frustrated uh, Sally Gary with Centerpiece uh, came and helped facilitate those discussions. And Sally was using the language of um, same-sex attraction. And it really bothered this gentleman that Sally wouldn't say the word homosexuality. And he wanted to insist that our elders use that word because that's what the Bible calls it. And of course he had all sorts of associations with what that word means and how God feels about it. And so the problem is, is that, again, this is a modern English word. It's a compound word, and um, it wasn't in the Greek. And so we're going to look at what these Greek words were and what they meant as far as what we know, what we can know. There might be some things that we don't know. Um, and you can obviously see that, that there are uh, perhaps different terms here in, in the text. So we're going to look at those. Um, the New Revised Standard Version says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, and thieves. Okay? Uh, so they're in the First Corinthians passage. So the New Revised Standard Version uses our, our sodomite word. Now, there's a Greek word for Sodom or sodomite. And it's not here in First Corinthians. And so the New Revised Standard translators believed, well, that's what Paul's talking about, and so let's use that word, because that's what he's obviously talking about. And so the question is, is that, in fact, what Paul is talking about? The New American Standard says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then, of course, we have the NIV up here. Men who have sex with men. Um, so there's two words here uh, in these verses. And uh, the one in the First Corinthians passage is uh, this term, malakoi. The first word is malakoi, and the second one 
which is also in the Timothy passage, is this word arsenokoitai. These are transliterations. Um, and so if you take the Greek letters and you just put the corresponding English letters uh, in place of them, this is what it would look like in the English language if you just say it the way it's pronounced. Malakoi and arsenokoitai. Um, and so what do these words mean? So we'll start with Malakoi. Uh, one of those translations translated it as effeminate, which, uh, again, apologies to the ladies. In, in this context and in the ancient world, uh, to say that someone was effeminate would be an insult. Um, and we'll talk, we'll talk about that. In other ancient Greek writings, this word malakoi is used to deride men who aren't following the conventions of cultural manhood. Or, as the great theological work of art, the Sandlot, would say, you play ball like a girl. Right? Um, this insult that if a man does something the way a woman would, uh, he is to be derided, made fun of, and put down. So, in that culture, women were viewed to be in, uh, inferior or less than, than than men. So, a man that was too emotional was like a woman. You care too much. You're too emotional about this. Like an irrational woman. I, I'm so glad that we've put all of those kinds of ways of talking behind us. Nobody ever talks like that anymore, do they? Uh, a man that's too emotional is like a woman. A man that didn't have control of his passions was like a woman. And by the way, if you think about this, um, you... you you hear this language perpetuated maybe in other places in the New Testament and also beyond um, in the early church writings and, and their commentary on the Adam and Eve story. You get a lot of uh, anti-woman language about how the woman, of course, in the story is deceived first, but you know the women, all women are evil, right? Augustine basically says all women are like evil and, um, and, and seductresses, and, um, and men would be good, and the world would be great if it weren't for the evil lure of women. And, and so this, this whole idea that women are not to be trusted, and that if you in any way behave, if a man, a free man, behaves like a woman, that he's being less than who he was made to be. So in general, the term designates someone who lacks self-control or mastery over themselves, primarily that of being manly according to their cultural standards. So some scholars believe Paul uses this word to talk about um, the sin of a lack of self-control. Uh, in this context, a comparative equivalent might be, in our context, that this is a person who has no backbone or integrity, a person who's weak or lazy. Right? So, uh, if you have a man who is freaking out and, and not uh, stepping up to the plate with courage, someone might say to him, what? Be a man! Man up! And, and so that's kind of what's going on under, underneath it. And so we can imagine all sorts of cultural uh, baggage and, and gender identity uh, questions uh, underneath that. Other scholars believe that Paul uses this word as a reference to men who play the part of the woman in a homosexual or gay sexual encounter, right? And so, not to be too too graphic for those of you who might be troubled by these these ideas, there's there are two there are two people in in this uh, arrangement, and one would be the aggressor or the instigator, and the other would be uh, the one who's being acted upon, 
okay? And so uh, in that culture, for a man to be penetrated would have been ultimate shame. Because men, that doesn't happen to men. Men are the ones who do the penetrating, and women are the ones who are the penetrated. So for a man to be penetrated by another man would be ultimately shameful. And so um, some scholars believe that that's what Paul is referring to here, that the Malachi, uh, who won't inherit the kingdom of heaven, are uh, softies or feminine, that these, this is the passive partner in a gay sex act. So the question posed by this word is, is the sin of being a Malachi specific to men who play the role of the woman in a sexual encounter with another man? Or is it more a general term that denotes men who lack self-control and are inferior like women? Is it possible that the second also assumes the first? In other words, does Paul use this word exclusively with gay sex in mind, or does he use it to mean something else? And is what's shameful about this that a man is not acting like a man, or that two men are having sex, right? So there's some questions there. And again, how do we know who decides who gets to decide? And is, is there a lot that we might not know about how this might have been used in context in the ancient world? Probably so. And so, um, just translating this word as sodomy or homosexual or, or whatever, um, we might pause briefly and to say, okay, we may have been making some assumptions about what this word means, and maybe not. Okay, the point still remains that whatever it is that Paul's talking about here, God doesn't like it. Okay? And, and, and so the question is, we gotta, we got to do the best job that we can to understand what, what that means and why it's problematic. Yes? Yeah, I'm just wondering if we uh, look at the context, it says the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So can just not being a man be considered unrighteousness hmm. that's going to keep you from the kingdom of God? Right. Not being a man. Yeah, and so obviously, yeah, being certainly Paul wouldn't say that just by virtue of someone being a female that they don't they can't inherit the kingdom of God because that would be in direct contrast to what he says in Galatians three, that now there's no longer male and female in the kingdom; all are one in Christ Jesus, right? So I, I definitely think Paul is not saying that. Um, so the question would be: is is the problem here that a man is who is living outside of what it means to be a man or a godly man or a culturally acceptable man? Is, is, is therefore un, unpleasing to God. So there's, yeah, there's several layers there of, of why this could be uh, significant. Well, let's go to the second word, and then we'll, we'll kind of wrap some of this up with these specific words. Arsenokoitai, men who lie with men. So this term appears in no other existing ancient Greek writings that we know of before when we assume this was written around the time that this was written. And the word is almost non-existent in Greek writings after this as well, leading many to believe that the term was coined by Paul, which he derived from the Greek translation of Leviticus 20. Okay, so you probably know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and then uh, the, the Jewish community um, towards the time of Christ uh, the Greek language became the prominent language in the world, and they translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. It was called the Septuagint. And, uh, and so 
the decisions that they made are, are telling how they translated their scriptures from one language into another language sort of may indicate some of the decisions they were making, how they understood things. And we certainly know um, more about some of the Greek writings at the time than we do about the ancient Hebrew writings, probably. And so this might be telling. So what it appears like Paul did is you look at the, the Septuagint translation of the Leviticus 20, and you have the words, the word for men, arson, okay, the first part of that word, and coitus, which means bed, and they appear next to each other in the text, and so it just it appears like Paul just squishes those two Greek words together and makes a new compound word that hadn't previously really been used in, in existence. So it appears that Paul adopts the same traditional Jewish prohibition on male same-sex activity in this verse, which is a big deal if that's true. Because, at least for us, when we've said, oh, you know, we don't really follow the Old Testament unless there's a New Testament command that reinforces an Old Testament command, and then, you know, now it's in play. We've got to follow it. Which, okay, it appears that that's what Paul's doing here. Okay? Um, and so, however, the most common forms of same-sex behavior in the ancient world were different than what we might be talking about today. Um, many people ask this question. Would Paul have ever envisioned a scenario in which two people of the same gender would want to live life together in a committed covenant relationship of love who happen to be the same gender? And a lot of people would say, no, Paul could never have imagined that. Well, we don't, how do we know what Paul could have imagined? So that's speculation, okay? But it does seem likely that people in the ancient world would not have had the same idea that we now have of sexual identity or orientation. In the ancient world, men who slept with other men, we have almost no evidence that they did so out of a desire for love and covenant relationship. Almost all the examples we have in the writings where men sleep with men, uh, pederasty, where, where an adult male sleeps with an adolescent or younger male, prostitution, and sex between masters and slaves, in which the master always took the active role and the slave always took the passive role. All of these acts typically involve a person of power and financial means exploiting a person of weakness or of social inferiority. Which gets us back to Sarah's sermon last night where there's power differential, right? And so these are sexually exploitive acts where someone powerful is, is using their power to abuse someone else. So some questions. Does arson akoitai refer to all same-gendered sexual activity in the ancient world? Or are these acts sinful because they involve, are these acts sinful because they involve two people of the same gender? Or are they sinful because these acts exploit and dehumanize those who are powerless? Or is it both? If it's sinful because it's exploitive, then what about two consenting adults who engage in same-sex sexual activity out of a mutual desire of love flowing from intimacy and covenant? In other ancient writings where this word appears, it usually appears in lists discussing justice, especially economic justice, but not in the list discussing sexual vices. So in other words, when this kind of behavior pops up in other Greek writings as the, like good Greek and Roman free men don't 
lose control of their passions in these ways. Um, it's almost always uh, in lists of vices that involve um, things about power and economics. And it's not typically talked about in uh, things talking about sexual vices. So that, that's also telling. So there's a few exceptions. Uh, in a few writings, this word is used exactly in the middle. You have a list of economic sins about justice and power, and then you have this problem, whatever it is, and then you have a list of sexual sins, which may imply that this is sort of a hinge issue where the two issues of sexuality and injustice meet. Um, in 1 Corinthians 6, this is the case. Let's go back and look, right? Um, okay, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, okay? That's, as, okay, we're going backwards, okay? But you've got sexual sins, and then you have thieves, greedy, right? These are, these are economic things. And so, and right in the middle is whatever it is that we're talking about that's going on here that Paul is saying is wrong. Okay, so, um, may we still assume that Paul's usage of the word is a condemnation on all same-sex erotic activity, and if so, on what basis will we draw that conclusion? Given that the overwhelming majority of same-sex sexuality in the ancient world involved pederasty, prostitution, and exploitation, could Paul have even imagined the possibility of a monogamous covenant marriage between two people of the same gender? Again, we can't answer that question. Um, and so that, uh, these, these two words, and here's what typically happens. We go through all that. And people say, you know what, just, you're just playing around with words now. Okay, well, just, you just say words can just mean whatever you want them to mean. And that's not what we're saying. We're actually saying the opposite, that these words can't just mean whatever we want them to mean. And, and so it's important that we look at the context of what do these words mean, what did they mean then, and um, are, do they mean what we think that they mean, right? So there's a Princess Bride reference in there somewhere. You keep using this word, I don't think it means what you think it means. Um, and so there's some questions. Again, I'm not trying to play footloose and fancy free with the, with the biblical text. It's just, we don't have a ton of evidence of, of what we're supposed to do with these words. And the Bible translators have to make some really difficult decisions when they translate these words. They have to make some theological commitments and decisions and, and just, okay, we got to land somewhere. We can't just put an asterisk there and then have 40 pages of commentary down in the notes. We just got to put a word there and make a decision. And then we've got to wrestle with the consequences and make interpretations. Okay, we're, we're running out of time. Let's go real fast to Romans. Here's the deal. You can play the game of the Old Testament's no longer relative for Christians. You can play the game of 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy. The words don't mean what we now mean by sexual orientation and monogamous marriage uh, between two people of the same gender. And so those are all off the table. Let's say in your mind you've discredited all those, that none of those prohibit uh, homosexuality in our world today. Romans 1. Romans 1 is where it seems, at least on the surface, uh, this, this, this is probably the most significant passage that we have to wrestle with. Um, and, and so it's where Paul is talking about what happens when human beings turn away from God and the world starts spiraling out of control and this happens and then this happens and then this happens. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones in the same way the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their 
error. That seems pretty clear, okay? Um, you can't really play around with the words. What these words seem to mean, they mean in other places, and you just can't really do anything about that. If, you're, if your project is you're trying to sweep the biblical text off the table that would prohibit this, thing, this activity, uh, then Romans 1 is you're going to have some problems doing that. Um, and so there are some theological terms here, and I've underlined them, and, and it, it does raise some questions that, that we do need to deal with. Okay, Shameful Lust. This is the most crucial New Testament text that places this, this activity as well as all other sexual immorality within the larger theological framework of what happened when humanity turned away from God. So there's four big categories named in this text. Nature. How does the created order of things inform how we live? There are some things that are wrong, according to at least what Paul's saying here, because they are unnatural. Okay. The second big category is lust and desires. So there are some things that are wrong because you are not keeping your passions in check. And then purity and impurity. Don't cross the taboo lines which flow from the nature argument. Okay? There are some things that we just don't do. Okay? And then honor and shame. That doing certain things brings shame upon the person doing it. So Paul refers to these acts as unnatural or against nature. And this was a common argument in the broader culture. Most of the Greek philosophical systems of the day condemned certain actions because they were against nature. We have a complication with this argument, though. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says that there's something that's against nature that people shouldn't do. Does anybody know what it is? Hair length. Right? Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? We have any men in the room who have long hair? I used to have hair down to here. Beth said, if there's only one thing I want for Christmas this year, it's for you to cut your hair. Um, so I did. It was, it was heartbreaking. I wanted to look like Jesus. Um, and, and so it said, it's the same language. You shouldn't do this because it's against nature. So a question, if people shouldn't engage in same-sex sexual activity because it's unnatural, shouldn't we have the same standard for hair length, according to what Paul says? Okay? Should we try to be consistent, or is there, are there grounds for saying this no longer matters and the other does? Um, Paul's referring to what's customary in their culture. Um, so, a fair question. Why is it okay for people today to do something that Paul would say was against nature regarding hair length, but not when it involves same-sex sexuality? Okay, and an additional consideration is the use of the term shameful lusts in Romans 1. That these are shameful lusts. Um, are these lusts shameful because they involve people of the same gender? Or are they shameful because it's lust? And lust is always shameful because it dehumanizes the other person. Right? Does Paul condemn same-sex erotic actions because they stem from excessive sexual desire and lust? Or does he condemn them because the act itself is wrong? 
Does Paul's use of the terms natural and unnatural reflect a concern about what is customary for gender roles in a patriarchal society? Is Paul condemning these actions as unnatural because they violate the original intent of creation or because they violate customary gender roles in their society? So those are questions that we gotta wrestle with in, in the biblical interpretation of these passages. And again, I am, I'm not an expert and I'm not uh, equipped to answer those questions. Even for myself, I wrestle with these things. And there's some days where I say, yeah, you know what? I just, I just don't see any, any way around Romans 1. And then there's other times where I'm saying, well, lust is wrong no matter who you're lusting after. And so is it wrong? Because, right? So we can kind of talk ourselves around. And the, the thing, it's not just that we're just free to decide and God doesn't care. I think God cares, but we've got to use discernment and we've got to be prayerful about how we interpret these things. So those are some of the tasks ahead of us as we interpret these discussions. Real quick, we'll just touch on some of these things. Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, people say that uh, that um, right, God created Adam and Eve. He didn't create Adam and Steve. Adam and Steve. Okay, I knew that some of you had heard that before. Um, many argue that even if a case can be made that none of the previous discussions that we've or passages that we've talked about prohibit same-sex activity that it doesn't matter because God created men and women compatible and there's an incompatibility um, there. And, and, and so that man and woman are, are supposed to, uh, you know, man will leave his father and mother, be united uh, with his wife um, and be one flesh. Um, and then Jesus quotes this verse, right? And so a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. And people say, yeah, he did. He talked about... Genesis 1, where marriage is between a man and a woman. Um, and so the only complication I can see in making that point, <coughs> first of all, of um, the one man, one woman argument. Well, Genesis 1 says it's one man, one woman. That's God's desire. Well, then what about David and Abraham and basically every other male biblical character in the Old Testament? We had multiple wives, which is most of them or a lot of them. David is called a man after God's own heart. And he had multiple wives. Huh? He still made mistakes. He did make mistakes. And the question is, is that what God desired for him to have multiple wives, or was that something God tolerated? If it's something God tolerated, and he was still a man after God's own heart, and God could still use him, and he was still part of God's story, the question is, is that true of people that we know who are maybe not... Let's say you still land traditionally. This isn't what God wants. But here's examples all throughout Scripture of people who aren't doing what the ideal is, and yet they're still part of God's story. So that's a question to wrestle with. Again, divorce, uh, divorce Jesus would fall into that category too. Right? What was that? Divorce would fall into that divorce. category. Divorce. God worked with divorce. Yes. Yeah, so in Matthew 19, Jesus appeals to the Genesis passage, um, and but the point there he's saying is people shouldn't get divorced. He's saying Genesis 1 because you shouldn't get divorced because you're one. Flesh. So he's not making the point that marriage is between a man and a woman. He's saying don't get divorced because you're one flesh. And then in Acts 15, uh, the Jerusalem Council, uh, where they're deciding uh, if the Gentiles can be part of the community or not, uh, seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from 
sexual immorality. So this question is, this passage is relevant because when the apostles say this, do they mean by sexual immorality everything the Old Testament law says about sexual immorality? If so, in a sense, they just baptized the whole Torah's teaching on sexual immorality, which would include the Leviticus 18 and 20 passages that prohibit same-sex sexual activity. So that's a question. The Greek word here is porneia. Jesus uses that word as well. Are they agreeing with what the Torah says about sexual immorality? All of it or just part of it, and how do we know? Okay, uh, we ran out of time. This is immensely complex. And I think for me, I don't think that we read all that and say, well, there's just no way that we can know. But I do think it should create in us a sense of humility. That these passages are more complex than people have said that they are. Lots of times Christians say, well, the Bible is very clear. And I guess I would say, uh, I think God knows how to be very clear. And, and I would say that for whatever reason, these passages are being debated. That could just be that human beings want to do what they want to do, and they're trying to figure out ways to do that. But for me, all of this adds up to this. First of all, we need to keep studying. We can't be lazy in our study of Scripture. Second, we can't be simplistic in our interpretations. We like to say that the Bible's clear, and it is on a great many things. But some things might not be as clear as we've made them out to be. So we should be diligent and prayerful about our intentions. And as we've already said, when we say the Bible is clear, it shuts down conversation, especially with those who have diligently considered these passages and have come to different conclusions. Um, lastly, whether we're talking about ourselves, and I'm sorry, I'm just reading at this point because I want to get you out of here. I'm sorry. Lastly, whether we're talking about ourselves as specific Christians or all of us as a church family, regardless of where we land on how to interpret these passages, one thing is most certainly true. And that is that people who experience same-sex attraction and who also love God and want to follow Jesus have an extremely difficult road to walk. And many have been abused or abandoned or orphaned by their churches. And our task is not only to do our best to interpret Scripture faithfully, which matters, but that's not our only task. Our task is also to ask how we can encourage people, how we can help, and how we can point every person to Jesus even as we also look to Jesus through our own experiences. So what then is our response? And how do we move forward in both truth and love? And to answer those questions, I would encourage you to uh, get the podcasts from the rest of the lectures. I think there were five other classes on this topic that deal more with those questions. And for me, I'll just tell you my personal conviction, is that I think that if we are going to draw a line around uh, who's in and who's out, Let's draw it behind the table of the Lord and not in front of the table of the Lord. Because I know the young people I know in particular, if we tell them you can't come in here until you change, first of all, that's hypocritical. And second of all, their response to that is not, well, oh, I better change so I can stay. Their response is, see you later. And the world is waiting with a different narrative. That's what Mark Arhouse says about the, the, the scripts that are already written. Let's pursue a third script that says, there's room at the table for all of us to be transformed. Mm -hmm. Amen. And so let's be the kind of people that can hold that intention as we try to love each other. So thanks for coming. Sorry I kept you five minutes late. That's uh, characteristic. Thanks. Thanks.